Hey all, this is Nate with Purity for Life. Well, we are in the final stretch of planning for our upcoming annual conference, and there's still time for you to register for this special weekend. What we want to do on this podcast is give you a taste of some of the teachings that you would hear if you join us on April 22nd and 23rd. So we're going to play Pastor Steve Gallagher's message from our 2019 conference. The message is entitled, The Danger of Apostasy. Thanks for joining us. Well, as you know, the theme of the conference this year comes from John Newton's song, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. To my knowledge, there's nothing in Scripture about um, any other time period as being dangerous except for the end of the age. There's never been a period of time that the Lord wanted to identify and say, watch out for this time, beware, be cautious, be on the alert, except for the last days. In fact, Jesus said that over and over, didn't he? Be on the alert. And you really see it in 2 Timothy 3, where We get that from, but you must realize that in the last days, the times will be full of danger. That's the Phillips translation. That phrase, the times will be full of danger, is actually just two Greek words, kairos, kalepos. Now, when you're talking about time in the Greek language, usually the word is used is chronos. That just means a period of time. But there's another word, and many of you are familiar with it, kairos, and that's the word that's used here, kairos. And kairos has more to do with a season, and usually, depending on the context, usually it's the distinctive characteristic of that season. And when Jesus and Paul, both of them, talked about the end times, they talked about a period of time, a season that could be best illustrated by a woman in labor. Now, I don't know anything about that. Not even my wife knows anything about that. But I guess I've heard enough that I get a sense of it, um, that it begins with, you know, contractions that are somewhat uncomfortable and come occasionally. And, you know, it grows in intensity and grows in rapidity until at the final end there's a birth that happens. And that is a description that Jesus was using, especially, to describe the end times because evil is going to come to its full fruition. And it's going to be like a boil that the Lord takes a lance from heaven and lances that boil, and there's a birth that comes out of that. 
But before that happens, that angry red boil will be a time of difficulty, of danger. And you see it also in verse 13, where it says, evil men and imposters, false teachers, which are spoken of repeatedly about the end times, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. There's a flow, there's a direction, things are headed somewhere. Deceiving and being deceived. And really, you know, the literal, what that really literally says, that word proceed, is, is advancing toward evil. These false teachers and imposters are creating something that's false. And they are going somewhere with that and they are taking many, many people with them. And it's going to come in wave after wave and it's going to grow in intensity as time goes on. Now, as I said, Kairos has more to do with the character of a period than its duration. So, for instance, in Matthew 13, Jesus mentions the time of harvest. That's the Kairos of harvest. And in Matthew 16, the signs of the times, the signs of Kairos. Luke 8, the time of temptation, the kairos of temptation. And Luke 21, the times of the Gentiles, the kairos of the Gentiles. But here Paul is saying something else. The kairos of kalepos. Now kalepos is only used one other time in scripture. And that is in Matthew 8:28, where... Um, What's being described are these two demoniacs that lived in some caves, some tombs, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they were dangerous men. In fact, in the NAS it says, so extremely violent, and that's the word kalepos, so that no one could pass that way. The Amplified, so fierce and savage, The Weymouth translation, so dangerously fierce that no one was able to pass that way. Now, the NAS, I don't know why they translated it in this place with such a weak word as difficult. I mean, you know, difficult is like something I would use driving into a traffic jam. That would be difficult. Dealing with my wife at times is difficult. (laughs) It could be difficult after this service as well. (laughs) But I wouldn't call it (laughs) dangerously fierce. (laughs) Not even on her worst day would I say that. But when we're talking about the end times, we're talking about a season that is a dangerous time. Let me put it this way. You know, these these demoniacs were possessed by a spirit, right? These two men, at one time, they were innocent little boys. What happened to them? 
But by the time they got to this point, they were so possessed by evil, foul spirits that they were crazy. They were raving mad. They would attack anybody, including themselves. And that is a description from God's perspective on the time that you and I live in right now. A time when the spiritual climate will be inspired and energized by demons. A time when it will be easier to be deceived than to walk in truth. A time when it will be easier to be led astray than to walk in the narrow way. A time when it would be easier to be backslidden in your heart than to walk in your heart near to the Lord. That's the day we live in. So Paul begins this passage in 2 Timothy 3 by saying, you must realize that the last days will be a perilous season, a perilous time, a menacing time. Now it's interesting because I know what you're all thinking. It's like, where's the danger? You know, we're, this is America. This isn't Iraq or something. It's interesting that when Paul wrote this, and if any of you have read um, Standing Firm Through the Great Apostasy, I talk about this a little bit, but when Paul wrote this, it wasn't when he was in an apartment in Rome, you know, under guard, when he wrote Philippians and Ephesians and those other prison epistles. This was a different time. He is in the dungeon of Rome. And Kathy and I were over there a few years ago, and we actually went down into that dungeon, they say, was where he was, and it was foul. You know, and so he's down there. It's a time of white hot persecution Nero has gone mad he is full of the devil and he's hunting down Christians and you know I've been listening to uh, Eusebius the audio book of, of his um, the audio version of his book and also Fox's book of martyrs I don't know what's gotten into me lately I just started listening to it anyway it'll really cheer you up if you ever need to get cheered up sometime <laughs> But I was listening to what these people were going through. And Paul, every day, you know, these people are around him. Some would be drug off and thrown to the lions or hyenas and ripped to, to shreds or, or covered with tar pitch and set on fire and burned to death. And he is looking all around him at what? Nothing but selflessness and love and humility and love for God. They would not deny the Lord. But all of a sudden, he's just writing out this last final letter to Timothy, his beloved son in the, in the Lord. And he's giving him instructions about how to operate the churches. And as he's writing, all of a sudden, the Lord just comes on him and opens his eyes and he sees off ahead 2,000 years into history, into the horizon, the dark horizon, and, and before his eyes, he gets a sight of the professing Christian church of the end times. 
And it isn't selflessness that he is seeing. People will be full of self-love. Utterly self-centered. That's what he saw. All right, now I would have preferred to preach out of this passage and just kept on plowing through, but the Lord spoke to me clearly that he wants me to do something different, and it's going to be a little different of a message, so we better stop and pray, okay? Lord, you know better than any of us that the end of the age is upon us, that time is drawing short. The sands of time are running out. Before we know it, our opportunity to get right and to live right, to live meaningful lives for your kingdom, to give of ourselves, to live selflessly. That time is going to come to an end before long. How much longer, how much darker, how much more evil do the days have to become before you come back, Lord? And I pray, Lord, that you will arrest our attention this morning. Speak to our hearts. Create the urgency that was written in Paul's words and in your words, Jesus. When you talked about these last days, there was a great urgency in your voice. Help us, Lord to wake out of this carnal slumber and to hear what the Spirit would say to us in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation 2 and 3 is really um, an accounting of a word that Jesus gave to seven different churches located around Asia Minor in 95 AD. These seven cities, five are in real danger, according to the Lord. Two were safe because they were dwelling in the presence of God. Now, there's many different ways that we could divide up Christians categorize, characterize, whatever. This is the part that I'm getting at that just was a little bit different for me. Here's how I'm going to divide this out. There are rule keepers and there are rule benders. I don't think I need to explain what a rule keeper is. A rule bender is someone that's on the other side of the fence and maybe isn't totally given over, but... You know, he just tends to be on the side that stays outside the line sometimes. So, you know, in our natural being, just our natural tendency, we are going to either be a law keeper or a law bender. 
We're either going to be the older brother or we're going to be the prodigal son. We're going to be the Pharisee or the publican. We're going to have a tendency towards self-righteousness or a tendency towards self-indulgence. I see this pattern in the American church. And let me put it to you this way. This is really going to blow your mind. This is awesome. I see a lot of the lawbender type in Pergamum and Thyatira. They are, if they continue going in that direction, going to end up in Laodicea. And I see a lot of law keepers in America that are like the Ephesians. And if they keep going in the direction they're going, they're going to end up like Sardis. So let's just talk about these two groups. Lawbenders of Pergamum, Thyatira, and Laodicea first, okay? Now, I can't read all these passages as much as I would love to. I'm just going to have to skip through this and make some points. I'm assuming that you guys have um, studied Revelation 2 and 3. At least enough to know what I'm talking about. But Pergamum, Jesus uh, had some things to say that were positive about the Christians in Pergamum. But what stands out to me is that he rebuked them for tolerance. He rebuked them for tolerating sin in their midst, and he rebuked them for tolerating false teaching. There was a group of antinomians that are called Nicolaitans that were within that church, you know, so they were like a what, just a, a group in the church that was infecting the rest of the uh, believers in that church with their antinomian mindset. Irenaeus, who lived in the second century, he said this about them, the Nicolaitans live lives of unrestrained indulgence, abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats. Leading a life of self-indulgence. Yeah, that was me at one time. And by the way, I am on the law-bending side. I've never been much of a law-keeper. But anyway, and apparently these people took Paul's message of grace and they corrupted it into being something other than the way Paul intended it to be. And their whole philosophy was that, listen, as long as you believe in the Lord, the way you live your life is secondary. It's not really that important because his grace covers everything, every sin you ever committed, every, every sin you'll ever commit, it's all covered by God's grace. And that was their mindset, and that opened the door for all kinds of indulgence of sin. Thyatira had a, a similar problem. Except there, there was a woman that Jesus called Jezebel because she had, um, she was just really full of the devil. And she was influencing and seducing people in that church of Thyatira. And so the believers of Pergamum and Thyatira represent lawbenders. Let me just talk about lawbenders for a second. Lawbenders tend to be independent-minded. Uh, 
They like to go their own way. They like a lot of latitude. And when they are right with the Lord, lawbenders can be pretty awesome because they're the kind of people will just turn the church upside down. They'll turn the world upside down, in fact, if the Lord really gets a hold of them. They are not afraid to stand up against false teachings, false religion, against false uh, teachers. And they don't allow, allow themselves to get bogged down with formalism or unnecessary rule keeping or religious protocol. They love the Lord and that's all that really matters to them. And when they're right, they are a blessing to the church. We need people like this who will disturb us occasionally. But if they start sliding away from the Lord, they can get themselves into trouble in a hurry because they have a natural bent towards lawlessness. You know, lawbenders have a tendency to push the envelope, to bend the rules even to the point of breaking, to splurge and indulge. And Paul talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2, when he's, again, talking about the apostasy, he mentioned a phrase he called the mystery of lawlessness, the mysterio of uh, animos, I think is something like that in the Greek. The mystery of lawlessness. Lawlessness is what Jesus described in the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he said, there will be those who say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and did, didn't we do that? And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. He said they were lawless. And he told the Pharisees when he gave that withering rebuke of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he said, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Given over to it. And Jude spoke of those who would turn the grace of the Lord into licentiousness. Again, talking about end time false teachers. Licentiousness means license to pamper the flesh, license to go your own way, license to sin. And so, you know, when... A person of this bent, who is a leader, starts getting away from the Lord, they are dangerous because they can often be very influential people. And all you've got to do is go down the list of the who's who in the American church today, and you're going to find a lot of the people I'm describing right now. This is what Jesus and Paul and Peter and Jude all saw when they looked off into the future, they all saw a time when there would be influential men leading many away from the Lord. As the church continues this general slide away from God, you will witness things getting worse and worse in the evangelical church. For instance, now, I've been, uh, you know, a Christian one way or another since 1970. And so I've been around for a while. That's 50 years next year. 50 years. And I have seen a huge 
falling away in my time. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it would have been unthinkable that millions of professing Christians would be addicted to pornography. It would have been unthinkable that that could be the case. It would have been unthinkable that many, many people in the evangelical church would be accepting homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle. That would have been unthinkable 30 years ago. And remember, we're talking about labor pains. You know, it took its time for things to get where they have gotten, but you're going to see an intensity as time goes on. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And that word many is the majority. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Paul said in the following chapter after this 2 Timothy 3, so chapter 4, he said a time will come. This is looking off in the future. He's still in that that vision or whatever it was he was experiencing that day that he wrote this stuff down. A time is going to come when they will no longer tolerate sound teaching. Instead, they will live by their own desires. They'll scratch their itching ears by surrounding themselves with teachers who approve of their lifestyles and tell them what they want to hear. They will turn away from the real truth. If that isn't the day and age we're living in, I don't know what is. You know, it is so easy in this grace-saturated culture. Listen, grace in its proper perspective, like is taught in this church, grace in its proper perspective, man, praise God, where would we be without it? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a twisted, corrupted version of grace that is leading multitudes away from the Lord, not to him. All right. Law keepers of Ephesus and Sardis. Now, Ephesus was born in a mighty revival that came through the Apostle Paul. And you can read about it in Acts 19. It was phenomenal. I mean, you're just getting a, just kind of a, a, an overview of what happened. But it was so powerful that it spread throughout all of Asia Minor. In fact, these seven churches were all birthed in that revival that happened when Paul was there in about 40 or 45 or 50 A.D., right around that period. And so even in 95 A.D., Jesus comes and he sees the churches there. He sees Ephesus, the Christians, and he says, even at that point, they still had things that were commendable in their lives. He said, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. 
And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And he went on to also commend them for hating the lifestyle of the Nicolaitans. Ephesians were law keepers, generally speaking. That was the characteristic of that church. So let's talk about law keepers for a minute because many of you tend in this direction. Law keepers can be rigid and scrupulous. They're careful to dot all the I's so that no one can find fault with them. They like everything to be spelled out. That's when they're most comfortable is, you know, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. You know, and so they like a religious system that is clearly defined and so they know exactly what's expected of them. And they also tend to be very cautious about doctrinal matters. But whatever is going on in their hearts, um, you can always rest assured that their outward behavior is going to be religiously correct. Law keepers, when they're right with the Lord, are a blessing because they are the ones who create real stability in the church. But if they start sliding away from the Lord in their heart, what happens is their spiritual life starts to ebb away. But because they have the structure, that religious structure that they are so focused on keeping and maintaining, because that remains intact, the spiritual life can ebb away and they're not even aware of it. And when they get there, what they tend to become is self-righteous and critical of other people. And one of their favorite phrases that goes across their mind is, I would never do that. I would never do something like that. And sometimes we see the spirit with the wives of men we deal with in this program. You know, sometimes we see that, that same kind of spirit. And, you know, I was sharing with the guys at the residential facility a few weeks ago. I asked for a show of hands. How many of you were raised in church? And, I mean, I expected oh, maybe half, you know, but it was like 90-some percent of them. It really shocked me. I was surprised, and I was sharing with them a couple weeks ago, whenever it was, that, of course, Christian parents want to raise their children in a godly environment. They want their kids to do right, but what can happen is that kids can be raised in a religious home where the parents aren't really on fire for the Lord, what they are, they are rule keepers, and they make sure that they dot all the I's and cross all the T's and do all this outward stuff, but their hearts aren't aflame for God. And so they're showing their kids, they're teaching their kids how to become religious actors. And so many people are raised in homes like this, and they think that that's Christianity because they are just imitating what they see all around them. People who are doing the outward Christian thing, whose hearts are not really with the Lord. This religious mindset became entrenched in Ephesus. With all their rule keeping, they lost sight of 
the greatest law of all, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. With all their religious doings and making sure that they are doing everything exactly right so they can't be criticized. With their focus on that instead of on the Lord and loving the Lord, they've lost the greatest thing. You know, lost love leads to the dead formalism of organized religion. It was organized religion, I'll remind us, that put Jesus Christ on the cross. And it was organized religion that threatened to rip the church apart in its earliest days. And it was organized religion that persecuted Wycliffe and Luther and Tyndale and the Moravians and many others. And it was organized religion that attempted to stifle and stop every revival that God has ever birthed in the church. And it will be organized religion that one day hunts us down and martyrs us. What am I talking about? I'm talking about lifeless Christianity, dead churches, passionless preaching that does nothing but build up empty head knowledge. And where does that take you? Right to Sardis. Jesus told the Christians in Sardis, I know your deeds. I know all about your activity. Your church is full of activity. You've got all kinds of programs going on. You're doing all kinds of stuff. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And back in our passage in 2 Timothy 3, Paul said of these people that they hold to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. In other words, holding to a form, morphosis, a structure, a shape of godliness, form without substance, structure without life, and this is one of the sad things about the evangelical church is it's perfectly acceptable to have powerless Christianity. That is perfectly acceptable. What is unacceptable is to not have the form of godliness. We are content as long as the people in our church and the people we fellowship with have a form of godliness. We're good with that. I've said this before that the only difference between a hypocrite and a pagan is a form of godliness. Because their inside world, their inner, inner man, their inward life is just as in love with the world as the pagan is. The only difference between the two is a form of godliness. So the danger for law keepers is that you get so focused on your list of do's and don'ts that you lose sight of the Lord. You're drying up. Your love for God, the reality of the Lord in your heart is ebbing away. 
and you don't know it because the structure is still in place. All right, there's a third group. I'm going to call them the lawful lovers of Smyrna and Philadelphia. These are the people who dwell in the presence of the Lord. They obey the Lord, but they don't obey the Lord to maintain some image to others, you know, to look the part. They obey the Lord because they love him and they don't want to grieve him. They have sincere affection for God that affects every aspect of their thinking, their words, their lives, the way they do life. They have a form, but they also have substance. They have structure, but they also have the life of God within them. These are saints whose garments are unsoiled by sin or self-righteousness. And I know that there are many here today. I know most of the Pure Life staff, I would say this about. That's where they're living. Whatever side they may be on in a natural sense, a tendency to be more of a rule keeper or a tendency to be more of a law bender, whatever side they happen to be on, and I'm talking about whoever, you know, not just the staff, but whoever you might be, and I know there's many of you in here. You're right there with the Lord. He's got your heart. I ran across a quote that I want to read to you. When the heart is right, God can look over many things that are defective. There may be faults in judgment and weakness in practice. There may be many deviations from the best course in the outward things of religion. But if the heart is sound, God is gentle in pointing out that which is amiss. He's merciful and gracious and will pardon much that is imperfect when he sees a true heart and an eye fixed on his glory. And many of you need to hear that this morning because, you know, in this striving after the Lord and trying our hardest to obey him and to really walk with him, some of us are prone to self-condemnation. And you need to know that the Lord is for you. What this whole thing is about is relationship. It's not about law-keeping. It's about relationship. And whatever laws are in the Bible, they're only there because they, if you break those laws, they will break fellowship with him. And that means everything to the Lord, to have that kind of unity and fellowship with you. All right, now I'm going to wrap up. I want to get back to this thought about apostasy. Apostasy is the exact opposite of revival. What is revival? It's when the presence of God falls upon a region, an area, a people, 
His presence just impregnates the atmosphere. And it becomes easier to do right than to do wrong. And people are running. Breaking into the kingdom of God. Violence. A violent attitude is what Jesus described it. When people are intent on finding the Lord. That's revival, man. And revival is awesome. Revival is an awesome thing. Apostasy is the opposite of that. Someone said that Pure Life Ministries, they just, it was a little quote, and I think it's on the website maybe, but Pure Life Ministries lives in revival. And I think there's kind of some truth to that. At least that's what we strive for there. We want to walk with the Lord and have his presence prevail over that 45 acres out there. Apostasy is the opposite. Apostasy is when, like Laodicea, Jesus is driven outside the church and he's out there knocking on the door, wanting in, and no one's listening and no one cares. That he's not even in the church. Apostasy is when the demonic have their way. Revival makes you want to go towards the Lord with everything in you. Apostasy is taking you in a different direction. It's like a slow and subtle avalanche. There's a mountain, the church, and a great piece of it is cracking and breaking off right now. Right now. Do you understand the significance of the time, the season that you live in? A piece of it is breaking off and falling away. And anytime you're talking about falling, you're talking about momentum. And when it comes to people groups going in a direction, there is something that's called critical mass. Critical mass is when a thought or a belief system or an attitude or something like that gets so a hold of a people that it takes on a life of its own and generates itself and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can look at the media and see some of the liberal causes that have taken over our country in the last 30 years and see exactly what I'm talking about. And that has happened in the church. There's a critical mass that dynamic occurring where people influence each other, not towards the Lord, but the other way. And that mindset, fueled by the media, fueled by a love for the things of the world, fueled by the internet, fueled by television, the things that we can't live without, cell phones, the We have to have our cell phone. We have to have our screen. We're addicted to screens. All of that is what's creating that hideous description in 2 Timothy 3 that all comes forth out of the love of self, the love of money, 
the love of pleasure rather than the love of God. That whole mindset. You know why it's become so powerful in the church is because we are so focused on what's happening in the world. What's going on in the culture is bigger to us than what's going on in God's kingdom. And it's taken on a life of its own. Proverbs says, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The fool goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. And I just ask you to examine your heart and decide which side are you on. Are you sliding off into being lawless or being a rigid law keeper, scrupulous about keeping a bunch of rules but not so concerned about the reality of God inside. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Again, there's still time to register for this special weekend. Our conference will be held at the Ark Encounter in Williamstown, Kentucky on April 22nd and 23rd. We'd love to see you there. You can get all the information about this conference at conference.purelifeministries.org. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.